only about 5% of patients currently go into remission from existing treatments. So that's 95% of patients who are not getting better. Whereas with these trials, we're seeing remission rates of between 60 to 80% after just three medicinal doses of MDMA in combination with a short course of psychotherapy. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And today we've got a fascinating discussion on psychedelics. And we've got two guests with us today, Tanya de Jong and Dr. Alana Roy. Hi guys, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. As I mentioned, we're here to talk psychedelics. It's an emerging area, I suppose, there's a, a re- renaissance of research and you guys are part of the Mind Medicine Australia who, um, well, you can tell us all about it in a moment, but as I understand it, campaigning to, to get psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy as a viable therapy in Australia. First, perhaps just could you briefly introduce yourselves and how you got interested in psychedelics? Um, So I'm Tanya de Jong and I'm the co-founder and executive director of Mind Medicine Australia and this is probably the furthest away thing that I thought I'd be doing at this time in my life right now. I'm a soprano by background and a social entrepreneur so I've set up a number of charities and a number of businesses. I've always been deeply interested in mental health and social inclusion and loneliness I think um, is another area of interest of mine and My previous charity, Creativity Australia, is particularly focused on alleviating loneliness and social isolation for people who are disadvantaged and marginalised. But um, I came across these medicines four and a half years ago through an article of Michael Pollan's called The Trip Treatment. And I was so taken by the article, it had a lot of resonance to my background because I'm the daughter and granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. And so I was struck by the story of this man who was suffering, I think, end-of-life anxiety and depression. And he was getting a lot of flashbacks to the Holocaust, even though he hadn't been actually in the Holocaust. He had this complete, you know, remission of all these symptoms of trauma and so on. And not that I was suffering from flashbacks or anything like that, but I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to try this? So my husband and I tried to get in some of the healthy patients' trials, but there weren't any that coincided with uh, trips overseas. And so finally we found a private guide in the Netherlands and we had a massive dose of psilocybin. We were shot into space and we experienced an incredible sense of oneness and connection and feeling of being part of everything and everything being part of us and all the things that people talk about when they experience these non-ordinary states. We came out of that experience convinced that not only that it was so profound and deeply meaningful to us and and it was very helpful to our own lives and our relationships with ourselves, with one another and with others, that we felt that it was really important that these treatments be available to all Australians who were suffering with mental illnesses, trauma, addictions, and that everybody have access to these treatments because quite simply, as we started to do research, we realised that the current existing treatments were not working for the majority of patients. That's really how Mind Medicine Australia came about as a registered charity. And um, yeah, 
Excellent. And Alana, you've got a, a clinical background in, in psychology. So tell me about your gateway, I suppose, into psychedelics. So I'm a, I'm a mental health social worker and a psychologist and got my PhD. And I've been a sexual abuse therapist for 15 years. So that's a large body of my work is working with childhood survivors of sexual trauma and adults and also in suicide prevention. And I guess I reached a point in my life, which was also four and a half years ago, which is interesting, Tanya, mm. where I, I wasn't able to hold the level of darkness and pain and suffering that I was dealing with with my clients. People were taking too long to get better and there was too much suffering, multiple failed treatments you know, with antidepressants. And it had a personal and existential toll on me. And I was losing hope as a therapist and I was yeah, starting to go under. So I, I went overseas um, by myself and met the medicines in a really big way. Ayahuasca, psilocybin, San Pedro. Yeah, completely, completely transformed my life in the sense that I, I know that there's tools here to be explored and to bring to Australia. And I'm also very passionate about the integration space where, you know, there's hundreds of people in Australia that are using these medicines illegally and could get in trouble, you know, for, for desperately just seeking help for their mental health. So we're really passionate at My Medicine about changing this so that people can get legal and safe access and not be stigmatised or, you know, criminalised because they're wanting to get better. Yeah, sure. Makes complete sense. Before we dive into some of the clinical effects, maybe just a bit of a, a 101. So for those that are unfamiliar, pretty unfamiliar, so I've done a little bit of a crash course, but psychedelics, it's a, it's a broad term, as I understand, there's different types. So can maybe just touch upon some of the, the categories and types of psychedelics? So the main ones that we're focused on at the moment, uh, there's MDMA, which is an empathogen, which is typically opens up the heart, opens up the body so that one is able to you know, experience their trauma without becoming really dissociative or activated, and psilocybin, which is a tryptamine, which is similar to ayahuasca, the family. And psilocybin in particular takes you, you know, into an altered state, whereas MDMA, you're not so much in an altered state, so... More grounded in your body. Uh, okay. And some of the other ones, like LSD, which, as I understand, you guys aren't campaigning for, so to speak. Not yet. Not yet. But they're the traditional ones. Well, that's right. I mean, there is. I mean, there is research going on globally. So we're particularly focused at the moment on psilocybin and MDMA-assisted therapies because they're in final stage of breakthrough therapy status with the FDA, which is a, a status that is only granted to medicines that could be vastly superior to existing treatments, and it's a status that is granted to really fast track the approval process to prescription medicine. But there are a number of other medicines in this class that are being studied. Um, not as extensively as the other two, but for example, ayahuasca is also being studied, DMT and 5-MeO DMT being studied. And there's also other very interesting medicines. Oh, well, of course, Ibogaine is being used quite a bit to treat opioid addicts. But there's also other ones being studied and maybe studied in the future, but they have a longer therapeutic action like San Pedro cactus peyote and also LSD, which you know, because the length of those treatments are so long, they're not as cost-effective to use and potentially right. not as effective overall. Mm-hmm. And potentially more stigma associated with LSD. Yeah, yeah, but what strikes me is these, from what I've seen in the research, typically use one to three sessions, I suppose. 
So you're only taking like literally sort of three doses, yet they seem to have a, a lasting effect on conditions that I've come to know as pretty sort of organic, structural and functional aberrations in the brain like depression there's changes in you know different regions like the hippocampus volume and anxiety the amygdala is larger and there's ptsd there's all this disconnection between different circuits etc pleasantly surprised how they can have such a profound effect on seemingly concrete illnesses what's the the theory on how these these substances are working in these um, pretty chronic conditions so i guess we can look at depression to start with which we know when someone experiences, you know, treatment-resistant depression, over time, their actual the size and volume of their hippocampus actually shrinks, the neurons and the glial cells. And what we've found with psilocybin is that it can create neuroplasticity and actually grow and regenerate the cells. And that's because the the default mode network in the brain, which is often responsible for rigid thinking, our personality structures, habitual patterns that is deactivated and the, the person's brain lights up, new pathways are connected and then the, I guess, egoic layer that keeps us bound to our traumas and our depression is, is dissolved and the person is open up to a whole range of mystical experiences, memories, stimulus, emotions and with that they believe and the neuroscience is supporting it that the brain is regenerating and getting like a, root, a reboot like resetting the computer chip, Nathan. Okay. Well, some people call it defragging the dodgy hard drive <laughs> of ourselves. Yeah, you know, yeah. The patterns and programs that we carry along, the projections that people put on us, all of that, and it's like just cleaning it all out in a good way. <laughs> Ama- yeah, amazing that, you know, a few doses can have this effect on neurogenesis. So just on that um, default mode network, I'd not really heard about that until recently, and so my understanding is we have this default mode network that I suppose makes us not have to think too deeply about our default mode, so to speak, but it's also attached to our ego and that's how we can become rigid in our thoughts. Yeah, there's that one paper on the entropic brain, which is a really long and complex one, but essentially psychedelics make your brain more entropic, which typically in um, everywhere else, it seems entropy is disorder and chaos, but is it because our brains are so stuck and rigid that that needs that nudge to become more open and fluid to then sort of reprogram or de- defrag, as you said? There's a, there's a concept called predictive processing, which our brain goes through every moment of our you know waking consciousness where our, our mind fills in the blanks so that we can get about our day you know, um, pretty automatically. But when someone is locked into rigid thinking, their, their, their neurons are fired in a certain way to rumination, depression, suicidal thinking their predictive processing is focused on the negative and it's very hard to get out of that mindset. So what we're finding with when the def- default mode network is deactivated and disorganised and disrupted, those, those ways of thinking are fundamentally broken down, dissolved, and then with the support of the therapist in the psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy process, they're able to rebuild and integrate a new way of thinking because they've actually had the ability to get out. That to me explains how it can potentially have effect on several similar but distinct conditions with that rigid thinking, depression, addictions, OCD. I want to now have a look at some of the research here to, to discuss the the effects on these conditions. So can you give a bit of a lay of the land on some of the, the recent um, research? Obviously there was a lot of research done in the 60s and it's 
it's slide right down obviously and now it's the last few years it's really picked back up can you describe some of the the research on, on mental health issues well just talk broadly particularly about the research done by maps on mdma and what they've what they've found is people with ptsd obviously have a overactive amygdala so their their brain is programmed for fear and stress flight fight freeze and fawn experiences so they're not able to really differentiate between past trauma and their current environment hence why they get constantly triggered activated um, and operate in you know really distressed state so what they've found with mdma is that the actual um, activity in the amygdala reduces and they're able to feel calm and, and relaxed in their body while they process the trauma with the therapist Right. And for a soldier, for example, who hasn't been able to go there, has not been able to face their trauma, what they've seen and been through, and the enormous toll that has with addiction and opioids, antidepressants, MDMA actually creates a container for that, for that person to be able to be in their body, face their trauma, and for their amygdala to allow them to do so. Wow. And that's really interesting in terms of the actual remission rates that are being experience. So the remarkable thing about what Alana is saying there is that only about 5% of patients currently go into remission from existing treatments. So that's 95% of patients who are not getting better. Whereas with these trials, we're seeing remission rates of between 60 to 80% after just three medicinal doses of MDMA in combination with a short course of psychotherapy. And that is profound when you think about how many more people could get better and lead meaningful lives. And this is six, 12 months later as well. Correct. I mean, the most interesting trial results that I, that I like to quote are um, a phase two trial that was supervised by the FDA of, of the MAPS phase two trial. 105 patients, all with treatment-resistant depression for an average of 18 years. So you can imagine the suffering. And 52% of them went into remission immediately after the three medicinal doses. And after 12 months, 68% had gone into remission. And that's now led to the phase three trials, which are in the second stage of the phase three trials, which are looking, we've been told, even more significant results than the phase two trials. Wow. Yeah. That's profound. Other areas, it's either um, emerging, I've looked on, clinicaltrials.gov there's a couple more than a couple (laughs) tens and dozens 160 current and recent trials there you go addictions alcoholism jumped out of me eating disorders end of life distress yeah any of those you speak about just just with psilocybin in particular you know because it can be such a a spiritual mystical transformative experience it, it is really linked into the end of life distress and people who are facing having to face their death and and mortality so we're seeing that used wide you know more widely and particularly in the community as well people who are facing death and and cancer and sickness turning to psilocybin for release and interesting uh, they're looking into um, ayahuasca for dementia which is from an anthropological perspective ayahuasca is used in the jungle for right. neuro- neurogenitive diseases from a cultural perspective, but now, now we're starting to look at it from the Western biomedical, which is really exciting. And psilocybin also for early-stage dementia. Oh, wow. There's a study um, just commencing at Johns Hopkins University in that space, which is really exciting. It'd be amazing to see Australia do some trials in that space as well. 
And what about substance abuse and, and like even drug addiction? Perhaps the layman might think it's a bit odd that a, a drug is used to treat um, some someone who may be dependent on drugs. So what's happening there with with um, using psychedelics for addictions? Because I work in the integration space as well. And, you know, as I said, mind medicine doesn't endorse illegal use of these medicines where trying to get them clinically recognised. But it is really interesting to see clients who have used these medicines recreationally and then step into a clinical or change their mindset around it. And what we find is that when people are ready to, to heal and get better, these medicines are incredible for addiction because they, they get to see what it's like to be inside their trauma body, what they're, what they're doing to, to, them, themselves. to themselves. Right. And ultimately, connection. These medicines provide connection to, to their body, to family, to community, to the world, to the larger ecology. And that's something that addiction and typical drugs of dependence don't provide. Um, you, do, you don't hear people talking about, you know, heroin, helping them feel more connected to, yeah. to their family, to, to Mother Earth, etc. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting meeting with people and providing that education around what these medicines can do for addiction. OCD as well, like, is that again that like the control, the lack of connection, you know, is there sort of a philosophical or psychological perspective on how, it, how it's working for people who are obsessed about rituals and, and the like? Well, it's going back to the default mode network. So when people have OCDs, ultimately it's because they're typically feeling out of control for whatever reason, yes. trauma, abuse, addiction, etc. And the, the OCD helps them feel safe, but it's not ultimately. It, they're unravelling inside. They're not sure how to break free from, from that habitual pattern. And that's where psilocybin can come in and reset reset those behaviours, you know, fire neurons in, in different direction towards flexibility, empathy, compassion, openness, and, um, of course, you know, the support of the psychotherapist to then back that up with integration and practical kind of application in their life is really important. Okay. Yeah, well, that's a good transition now to what does a, a session look like? I suppose there's the stigma, which I'm sure you guys are, you know, trying hard to break about the, the 60s and taking an acid and or now nowadays ecstasy at a party or something. But as I understand, it's a, a completely different environment with these psychedelics and having a, a qualified therapist there. Nathan, just, just to say about, you know, the stigma of the 50s, 60s, I mean, there was over 40,000 patients that were treated in therapeutic sessions, yeah. actually in therapeutic environments. I mean, we know psychiatrists in Australia who very successfully treated patients who were completely, you know, treatment resistant to everything else with these medicines back then. So there was an enormous amount of success with these medicines then. They were considered the next big thing in psychiatry. And really what happened was that... Um, President Nixon, when he had his war on drugs, politicised these medicines, unfortunately lied about the medicines and made them out as the bad guys, when in actual fact the science and the data showed conclusively just how much they were healing people and how prospective they were. Many people describe that act of censorship of, you know, basically stopping, uh, making the drugs illegal and that effectively closed down all research mm. and there's been this lost really nearly 50 years where we've had this major spike in loneliness and social isolation and depression and other mental illnesses which could have been to some extent at least avoidable had these medicines have continued to be available and further research for a range of different conditions 
So that's an example of politicization of medicine rather than focusing on science and data, which is yeah, exactly. what we're trying to do right now. Sorry, Alana, go ahead. I forgot the question. You know? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, the question was how does a session work? First and foremost, the preparation is really the, the key. So a multidisciplinary team and a, a psychiatrist assesses the person's um, suitability so they, they can't have bipolar, schizophrenia, borderline personality disorder at the moment or family history of those conditions. So we need to sure. make sure that they're they're safe, they're psychologically safe, um, and they need a diagnosis at this point in time of PTSD or major depression. So it's MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for major depression, and they need to have shown that they've they've tried other treatments, so other treatments have failed. Their suicide risk has to be assessed to be safe enough to do these medicines with, with support and a multidisciplinary team. And once that's approved, then there is two... Uh, therapists, psychedelic therapists, as well as a medical professional on standby that administers the medicine and is there for backup if there's any any medical issues. And then the, the session is typically between five and eight hours in that process that the client puts on an eye, eye mask and music is played and then they're encouraged to go in and, and meet the medicine and ultimately meet themselves. And when needed, they can come become in and out of the journey and, and engage with the therapist for support. And there is typically, there's a series of preparation sessions with the client as well as an integration session the next day and then subsequent integration sessions. And typically the, the medicine doses are one month apart. And um, the integration is so important as well because for many patients, you know, they name these sessions one of the five most meaningful experiences in their lives. Well, when do we ever say that about a medicine normally? <laughs> and so that sense of connection and unity, that sense of being part of everything, everything being part of yourself is so profound for people and that requires an enormous amount of really professional integration so that you can bring those insights that you've got in this altered state back into your life, into your work, into your family environment and really start to make the changes and become empowered for your own healing journey. I've read or heard about its amount of ego dissolution that reflects effectiveness or is it like whether you have a mystical experience or is it if you identify some metaphor and can relay it back? What, how, does, how do you unpack it? <laughs> well, you know, when I talk to clients, it's about also being prepared for not being prepared. You know, you can do all the reading that you want and you can set your intention and have your expectation, but ultimately the medicine's going to take you where it, where it needs to. It's really important that, they're, that they know they're safe, first and foremost, in the room and they're protected by the professionals and, and the medicine is safe. It's low-risk, non-toxic, non-addictive. That, Pure pharmaceutical grade. Yeah, that, can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that can help people let go, knowing those scientific facts. And then ultimately to trust themselves, if they can, to let go. This is their opportunity to go into the trauma, go into the darkness, go into the memories. Even if they experience ego death, even if it is terrifying, what they've found in the data is that that terror and that ego death is, is connected to the most positive outcomes in the mm. files. So there is educating them beforehand that it, this is healthy for your brain even if it hurts even if it's painful and that there is a therapist there to help you work through the memories the archetypal experiences the the whole range of you know psychedelic experiences that emerge so is there data on any adverse effects or long-term effects as you mentioned like it 
it could be quite dark and harrowing during that's not linked to like psychosis or anything else later on if anything it's um, linked to better outcomes yeah so the only adverse effect that's been really recorded has been anxiety that is because during a peak experience it can be anxiety provoking but I, I guess I just want to highlight that a lot of the clients that I work with really say to me we you know we have suffered for decades we have experienced pain and abuse and trauma and they often say to me stop trying to protect me I have experienced hell and now I'm ready to get medicine that will take me there safely and then the integration to to bring those um, lessons back into the real world currently there's no significant reported data on increasing psychosis and that's well and truly screened for to prevent that with a really you know solid support team um, people are able to turn that anxiety often into the most meaningful experience they've had in their life and, the, and it's also very important to say that contrary to some of the myths around these medicines, that they're completely not addictive. I mean, these, these experiences are so profound, it's not like you want to go and do it again tomorrow or on the weekend or every weekend or whatever. You know, it takes time to actually integrate, as Alana says, you know, the experience. I mean, Peter and I, um, after we had our first experience, it took us a year before we had a second experience. Oh, okay. We were not jumping out of our skins to go and do it again. And even with psilocybin, you, the, the more you do it, the less it works in a sense that you can't get addicted because the, the medicine will re- reduce its effects. So that's why it's non-addictive. You do quote a, a recent Australian drug harm study comparing all different drugs and substances for their harms, person and others. Mm-hmm. So can you describe that and where it ranks or is comparable to other substances? Yeah, definitely. So um, this study was done in 2019 at the University of Melbourne and it actually replicated a study that was done at Imperial College a few years prior to that. So it was a group of researchers and included a number of emergency responders and people, you know, in the ERs from different hospitals and so on who were undertaking the research. And what it conclusively showed, uh, it, it ranked both harm to self and harm to others. By far the most dangerous drug, harm to self and harm to others is alcohol of course which is completely unregulated Mm. people can take it in the highest doses you also have you know other drugs right up the top end of that scale that are very harmful like crystal meth the cigarettes cocaine's pretty high up there as well but right down the other end of the scale you have psilocybin and, and mdma which in their pure forms are considered to be extremely safe even in recreational environments Now, we're not proposing recreational use here, but it's important to say that even recreationally, it's pretty hard to harm yourself if you're having the pure medicine. What happens though with MDMA in particular is in its form as ecstasy, a party drug. Often young people at dance parties and so on get hold of something they think is MDMA, but it's often adulterated by other substances. In fact, often the capsules don't even have any MDMA in them. Right. A young person thinks that's what they're having. And unfortunately, that can lead to very bad outcomes, which is why pill testing has become such a hot topic. So, yeah, it sounds incredible, the the results getting from that assisted therapy. I just want to ask a few questions around, it seems like it's fashionable, maybe overseas for people to take microdoses of some of these psychedelics. Well, first of all, can you explain the potential rationale or what you can see the rationale is for that and what the, is there any science and what is that saying about microdosing with psychedelics? I think it's it's still an emerging field. There's there's a lot of unknowns, but 
people are microdosing all sorts of medicines, even ibogaine, ayahuasca, San Pedro, psilocybin, LSD. I'm aware that there was a recent trial suggesting that microdosing might, might only be as effective as placebo. Um, I guess from, from my experience working in the integration space is that people often can use microdose as a way to meet the medicine, start to familiarise themselves, uh, let go of control and, and their anxiety and work their self up to a higher dose. It can serve as a um, preparation for psychedelics. And similarly, I've also seen people uh, use microdosing for a whole range of issues ranging from even when, when women experience like premenstrual kind of dysphoric disorder. Right. Women use that um, psilocybin for that, for meditation, for creativity. There's so many unknowns. We haven't done a lot of research in microdosing and I can only speak from my experience and, and the clients that I work with, particularly those who develop a relationship with the molecules and the plants. They, they do feel that there's a connection and there's spiritual benefits as well as cognitive benefits but yeah much more research is needed when people have like a, a, a major clinical or you know a major dose of psilocybin or mdma um, particularly with psilocybin they need to go off depressants other medications two to three to four weeks at least before the treatment so often small micro doses of these medicines will help them still feel okay their receptors will be able to be cleaned out so that they can actually receive the medicine when they actually do have the medicine treatment. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I work a lot with a a cannabis doctor with THC and CBD and their microdosing levels and it has incredible results for PTSD, dissociation, also preparing people for psilocybin in particular. There's some research emerging that cannabis and CBD combined can help people who are dissociative because there is the rare occasion but people can have psilocybin and they are still uh they're not ready their body their nervous system is dissociative and blocks it's rare but it can happen clinically so what they're suggesting is microdosing legally the cbd and thc starts to break down down those dissociative barriers and then the body's primed to receive the psilocybin no interesting okay i hadn't heard about that i'd only heard about people doing it maybe for creativity or for um, spiritual practices, but yeah, know about that sort of priming for a, a bigger dose in a, in a therapeutic session. Interesting. Now let's move on to MMA. First of all, perhaps can you describe where other countries are at in terms of its use, regulations? I think in some European countries it's more accessible. Um, in the US, you've mentioned some fast track approaches. So yeah, can you give a bit of a lay of the land and maybe compare and contrast to where we're at in Australia? Yeah, sure. So where we are in Australia at the moment uh, from a legal perspective is that a number of doctors have been getting what are called SASB approvals for patients that are treatment resistant for both MDMA and psilocybin-assisted therapies. So these are patients who are very unwell. Some of them may be suicidal. Some of them are veterans and so on. And the TGA have been granting approvals on a case-by-case basis like what they do for medicinal cannabis for these treatments to take place. Now, it's important to say they would never get to take the medicines home. The treatment would take place exactly how Alana has described it. However, at a state basis, because the medicines are in Schedule 9, there are barriers to bringing the actual medicines into states where there's still recreational use laws that prevent the medicines coming in. And what what needs to happen in Australia is there needs to be a national standardisation so that every state in Australia recognises 
that there are medical uses for these medicines mm. um, and that bringing these medicines in via a medical exemption to treat a patient is quite different from having an open slather of recreational use. That's something we're working really hard with at the moment, which is why we've challenged the TGA's interim decisions, which denied the rescheduling from Schedule 9 to Schedule 8. So we've put in very strong submissions challenging every single point of the TGAs to make sure that the medicines can hopefully be rescheduled when the TGA makes its announcement on April the 22nd, its final decision on this this round. And so we hope that they will listen not only to our submissions, but to the submissions of hundreds of medical practitioners and patients with lived experience who talk about just how important it is to have these medicines available now, because otherwise more and more lives are going to be lost and there's going to be much avoidable suffering. Mm. And we can't wait any longer. From Mind Medicine Australia's perspective, we set up the charity to build the ecosystem to make sure that these medicines could become accessible and available to clinicians and their patients around Australia. And our goal is to expand the treatment options available to doctors and their patients because the current treatments are not working for the majority. And so we have four key pillars. One of them is education and awareness, focused on information and education events, podcasts like we're having with you today. We have a wonderful free webinar series. We've had people like Gabor Maté with 2,500 people registered. We've got Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris next week with his results on comparing directly an SSRI, a celotropan against, I can never say that word, versus um, psilocybin. And we already know from what he's told us that the results are very significantly in favour of psilocybin, not only for its effectiveness, but also for barely any side effects versus the side effects associated with antidepressants. We also have set up chapters all around Australia and New Zealand. So we have over 25 chapters, cities and also regional rural towns that basically create a movement, educate, provide awareness in the local community events, fundraising. We also have regular screenings of incredible documentaries. We have a major global summit planned for November with some of the leading doctors from around the world. We've commenced the first certificate in psychedelic-assisted therapies, the CPAP course, which um, currently is halfway through the first intake of extraordinary psychiatrists, psychologists, GPs, physicians, social workers, mental health nurses, occupational therapists and others who are training to have this as an adjunct to their professional skills and and talents and, and because they're all passionate about getting their patients well. Thirdly, we're looking at developing and setting up the first Asia-Pacific Centre in Emerging Mental Health Therapies for applied research and development. So really making sure that some of these other conditions can be trialled and Australia starts to lead the way. And we had a great announcement on that today with an announcement of $15 million from the federal government to support further research and development in this space. That centre would also look at the manufacturing and of the medicines, you know, agribusiness, like there's no reason why we need to import these medicines from overseas. We could certainly manufacture and grow them and develop them in Australia. We're also looking at the legal and ethical frameworks. So obviously the rescheduling, the SASB pathways, rollouts of clinics. And then Alana has, has set up a wonderful service called the Psychological Support Service, which she can talk about now. 
<laughs> Just briefly, yes, yeah. we've got a, a national a psychological support service, so that's helping people through the legal clinical pathway, but also people in the integration and community space to you know, harm minimisation and to really make sure people feel comfortable to come to us as trained allied health practitioners and integrative health practitioners to be able to educate them on psychedelics and their mental health. And yeah, we have an incredible team and we're expanding and we've had support through the NDIS for clients with disabilities to use their packages with integration, as well as a whole range of insurance providers and um, Medicare. So it's the first national service in Australia. So it's exciting. Pretty exciting. Well, you've done a lot of work in a, in a short period of time. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> the other thing I just wanted to say too, just with the CPAD course, because I'm aware that a lot of therapists would be listening to your yes. your podcast, and I do want to say that the first intake was full and the second intake I think is nearly full as well, which starts in July. So we really encourage therapists, clinicians who are interested in this training to apply as soon as possible for intakes two, three, four and beyond and we hope to expand that training to take place in, in centres around Australia as well. So it's very exciting and we welcome applications from innovative, progressive therapists who really want to get their patients well. Yeah, it's an amazing effort you've done in such a short space of time. I was looking on your website, you've got a who's who of cast of um, advocates and um, advisories. So just before we wrap up, how can people help? Um, yeah. Where can people find out more what to do? Sure. Well. Firstly, we're a charity, so my husband and I donate all of our time, pretty much, it seems like, 24-7 at the moment, and we also donate a lot of money to to enable this work to take place and really to, to achieve this big, hairy, audacious mission. And so we need as much support as possible, so we encourage people to support us, big or small donations, in-kind support as well is very welcome, volunteer support, joining our chapters, setting up new chapters, we have a wonderful learn section on our website where people can learn, read journal articles, watch videos, all sorts of things. There's lots of resources on our site as well. You know, we need to educate medical practitioner by medical practitioner. So go out and talk about this to fellow colleagues, MPs, talk to your local members, encourage them to get an understanding of this because constituents are going to be demanding this. Follow us on social media. Attend our events, so our webinars, our summit in November. We've already sold over 300 tickets for that summit. Wow. We have many of the world's leading researchers like Robin Carhart-Harris, David Nutt, Gabor Mate, Johan Hari, who wrote Lost Connections, some of the really leading researchers and practitioners in the world in this field coming to Australia. Yeah, just spread the word and help out and let's make this movement matter and change and save lives. Absolutely. Thanks again, and I might try and uh, connect with you in the future to get some updates because it's really fascinating. It sounds like it's evolving quickly, and hopefully it'll continue to evolve and um, these tools will be more available to, to practitioners and patients in Australia in the future. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.